The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. question that I think is relevant for us as, as Christians is, the question, is it okay to be great, right? Is it okay as a Christian to pursue greatness? And I think we get really kind of confused on this. And we read passages in the Bible like this, and we think what it says and what Jesus is telling us, what Scripture teaches, is that you should not be great, right? That pursuing greatness, being great, is somehow wrong, Right? Uh, but, but let's think about what this would look like in real life. You know, imagine, you know, if you are successful. And maybe you've had this. Maybe you've been successful. Maybe someone has complimented you and suggested that you, you know, are on the verge of something great. Do you, do you kind of feel the need to apologize for that, right? Like I feel this way sometimes. People say, oh, pastor, that was a great sermon. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. It just came out. <laughs> I'll try not to do it again, right? Is that what we do? Or your kid comes home with straight A's, right? Hands you their report card. They said, Dad, I'm so sorry. I'll, I'll try to get all C's next semester, I promise. Right? Uh, and yet that's kind of how we think about this whole greatness thing, right? On the one hand, we would never dream of discouraging our kid from excelling. But at the same time, if they excel and do well, do we apologize or feel that somehow we've got to chop them down Right? Or they might get arrogant or proud. Right? We're kind of conflicted and confused, I think, about, uh, about this topic. Can we be great or not? Uh, imagine your high school student scores 35 points in a basketball game. And after the game, they said, look, I, I tried to miss. I, the ball just kept going in. I don't know. I couldn't help it. Right? Well, of course, that's silly. Um, and yet, oftentimes, the way we live out life is with this kind of sense that a really genuine Christian, you know, true humility means to run away from greatness, to be striving for mediocrity and, and mundaneness in our, in our life and in existence, you know. To excel or to, to, to rise above, to be better than, you know, and, and to be successful, uh, to do great things is somehow a fault, right? Especially, and we, we would especially feel that if that was somebody else who was being successful. <laughs> They're such a jerk. They're just so arrogant, right? Now, of course, if I'm being successful, it's just God's blessing. Um, but if we come down to it, this really is at best an act, right? And it, it is by nature will be hypocritical because the reality is that all of us, deep down inside, want greatness, right? Uh, nobody have, no, none of us strives or hopes for mediocrity, None of us, you know, goes to our churches to raise support to come to Thailand saying, well, we hope not much happens. We're pretty sure we'll probably fail, but we're going to try, right? Well, of course not, right? Because people wouldn't give you money to be mediocre or to not do something great. So how do we balance this? Well, there's two perspectives. One would be that our desire, that thing in us that longs to be great, is ultimately just part of our sin nature, that uh, pride is there, and certainly pride can be a part of it, and that that's what drives our desire to be great. Or 
as I think Jesus teaches in his passages, and I think we will see, that this desire for greatness actually is something God has put in us, that he's made us for greatness. The problem, though, is that uh, Jesus would also say that sin nature has twisted and distorted our understanding of what it means to be great. And so we need to change our thinking uh, and, and revise what greatness is uh, so that we can truly be great as God created and intended us to be. Uh, in this passage, we'll also see, it's kind of a side note, but uh, what's happening here is you see Jesus working very hard to be uh, making disciples. And um, Jesus is a disciple maker, apparently not a very good one uh, as we go through the Gospels, but He's trying, right? Got to give him applause for trying hard at making disciples. He's trying to uh, produce in these guys a transformed life. And, of course, the truth is Jesus, by his own admission, says, I can't do this. He says, you will do greater things than me. Because until the cross, the power for that transformed life, the power to be an effective disciple maker is lacking. So until Jesus goes to the cross and until the resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, like we looked at last Sunday, Jesus can be only limited in his success. But he's a disciple maker, and he models for us here um, a great picture of how we in our own lives can be transformed, can be being more of a disciple, as well as how we do that for others. And what's interesting is that in each of these three stories, the disciples exhibit some less than godly behavior. I love the whole calling down fire thing. You know, that's like, yeah, go for that. Maybe not really what Jesus was hoping for, right? But what's interesting is that Jesus, in each of these cases, doesn't really attack the behavior, but he identifies that there is bad thinking behind their behavior. So we'll, do is we'll go through each of these stories. We're going to look, first of all, at this cycle. Uh, it begins with their bad thinking. We're going to look at the wrong thinking that's uh, the basis for their behavior. Then we'll look at the actions that flow out of that bad thinking. And then finally, how Jesus seeks to change the way they think about who they are, and especially who they are in relation to those around them. Um, discipleship is primarily about relationships. And in this, the, all three of these stories, uh, their failure is how they see themselves, especially in relationship to those around them. First story with those in their little group of 12. Second story, in the broader community of followers, disciples of Christ. And the third story, their interaction, their relationship towards those to whom they are proclaiming the good news. So let's look. First one. The first story I've called Great Beyond Compare. Right? Uh, and in this story, uh, the bad thinking has to do with the, the train of thought that answers the question, what makes us great? As you think about that in your own life, and your own mind, and as we think about especially the world we live in, how would the world answer that question? How would the disciples in this setting answer that question? What makes us great? Well, their thinking and their idea, it says that they were uh, disputing, arguing among themselves about who was the greatest. Okay, who was the greatest? Now, we don't exactly know what they were talking about, um, but it's clear that they were, they were having this argument about who was the greatest based on who 
performed the best, right? And that's really in our society and culture and in the world, how we rank greatness, right? Uh, and we do it. Think, think about the ways we do this. Uh, if you uh, are better at sports, if you're the best at sports, you become the MVP, right? You have a skill and are recognized for that skill as being better than all the other players on the field. Uh, in academic circles, uh, if you have the highest GPA, well, in fact, not even the highest, in school, and you know, if you go into the counselor's office and you say, I want to know what my class rank is. What does that mean? Well, it means we've rated every student from the top of the class to the bottom of the class based on their GPA. Right? There's a rank. Uh, I can be better than some. I can be worse than some. And if you're the very best, we honor that as with the uh, valedictorian at graduation. Right? You're the number one. Right? Um, we, uh, in, many, in many areas, we determine this hierarchy or rank. Uh, by, by doing what? Well, by doing exactly what the disciples are doing here. By comparing myself with somebody else. Right? How do I rate or measure up or compare when I put my skill, my ability, my wisdom, my knowledge, my wealth against somebody else's? Right? And that's how we determine who's best. And when you do that, there is a rank order. Right? You were either smarter or you're not. You scored better on a test or you didn't. You scored more points in a game or you outperformed another person. And by that basis, we establish a rank order. And in that system and in that scale, there can only be one best. There can only be one who's on the very top. There can only be one valedictorian, right? not 50. There can only be one who's the best student of the class. Uh, do we do this in the church? Yes. You go online. It's fun. I, I searched it. Uh, 100 fastest growing churches in America, right? or, or anywhere. I mean, I, there was a bunch of countries in Europe, in England, in Australia, right? I looked. We're not on the list. <laughs> Sad, right? But I'm, I'm, you know, we measure. Our church is better than your church because we grew faster, right? Um, we gave away a car. <laughs> try that. Um, Right? That means something, right? We have a rank. Well, um, what's the result of that? So that's their thinking. Their thinking is, I am better or worse based on my comparison of my skills and abilities with another person. Now, I don't know what this looked like for them, if they were arguing over who had healed the most people, who had, you know, who was the better preacher, who caught the most fish, who had the coolest new Nike sandals. I don't, you know, I don't know what they were comparing, right? But they were measuring each other, right? Um, and, it's, and, and, and what was the result of that? Well, an argument broke out, right? They're debating this, right? They're debating this. What's going to go on? What are the stats that are going to go on my baseball card, my disciple card, right? What's going to prove that I'm better than you? And they're debating this. Hands down, without a doubt, when we start comparing ourselves with others, the result will be arguing and fighting and divisions and disputes. Right? It does not foster unity when, uh, when our conversations go this way. Well, clearly, I'm a better preacher than you 
Clearly, I'm a better missionary than you. Clearly, I'm a better teacher than you. You know, how many kids, how many of your students got straight A's, right? Clearly, I'm a better parent than you. Look at, look at my kid, right? Uh, and that's where, as Christians, we start thinking, well, maybe greatness is not a good thing because we see the results of that kind of pursuit. Um, and the action and the behavior comes out of this concept is, is just fighting. Um, and it's, um, it starts to shape how we think about ourselves, right? How we view who we are as a person. Uh, why was it so important to the disciples to determine who was the greatest? Well, because for that person, they start feeling pretty good about themselves, right? How does the person on the bottom of the totem pole feel? Not that good, right? So it makes some people feel, which makes one people feel great. It makes some of the people towards the top feel okay. People on the bottom feel bad. Uh, how much do you struggle with comparing yourself to others? Uh, think about this. When you are down and discouraged, is it in part because you are not doing as well as others around you? Right? How do you feel when other people are successful and you don't seem to be? Uh, when you fail at something and others succeed, how do you feel about yourself and about them? Right? Do you feel jealous when other people actually are successful in ministry? <laughs> and they're bringing people to Christ. That makes me so mad. <laughs> really? Uh, we would never say that, but do we feel that sometimes? Uh, when your children don't perform up to the standards of what others think, does it let you down? Right? Do you base your identity on how successful your kids are? Um, now, of course, it's great to be proud when your kids do well. But is that what makes you feel good about yourself as a person? Um, when someone directly or indirectly says that you aren't as good at something as someone else, does it crush you? Right? I, I hear this. Boy, you know, I wish you could preach like my pastor back home. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, thanks. Yeah. Right? Sometimes it has crushed me, right? Because so much of my identity is wrapped up in, I want to do this better than everybody else. Um, likewise, when someone says, boy, you're great at that, what do you feel inside, right? Is that what you need to bolster who you are as a person? Well, that's largely where the disciples were, right? And it was causing these divisions, these fights, these conflicts. Well, uh, Jesus needs to change their thinking. Right? And he does not, uh, and we'll look at this uh, in, in detail, but what often gets understood from this passage is, is this. People think Jesus says this. Um, you should not be great. You should be nothing. Okay? If you're a real Christian, you shouldn't want to be great. You should be nothing because it's the nothings that are something. Right? That's not actually what Jesus says. Look very closely at verses 47 and 48 says, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him beside him. Okay, so he picks up the child. And this is probably a young child. The word here would, would imply uh, an older child, but maybe a four- or five-year-old, right? a very young child. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever, whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. 
What does Jesus mean by that? Well, first of all, it's significant that Jesus goes past their outward behavior, and he doesn't say to them, oh, you guys are always just squabbling and bickering. You're fighting. You're like three-year-olds. You're like a child, right? Because you're always just fighting. Stop fighting. Right? That's what I would want to say if it was my kids, right? It's not what he says, right? Not what he does. It says he sees the reasoning of their heart. The word reasoning there is the same word that's used in the previous verse to talk about their arguing. It's the word we get the word dialogue from. And it has the idea of having a heated discussion, a heated dialogue. Well, first it's, it's them having this dialogue with each other. But Jesus says the real issue is the dialogue that's going in your, on in your heart. You're having this discussion already in your heart, and that's where it starts, right? It starts because you're trying to measure yourself in your own heart, comparing yourself to others, right? So he says he understood their, the dialogue, this reasoning in their heart, and he deals with this heart issue, um, and he does it this way. He takes a kid, puts it in beside him, and he says, if you welcome this child, it's just like welcoming me. And if you welcome me, it's just like welcoming my father, God in heaven. Right? Now, I read that and I go, I don't get it. <laughs> okay, What does that have to do with greatness? Um, well, I think this is the logic that Jesus is, is using here. He says, he takes a child who's young and can't do anything. So here's, here's the point. If you were to compare yourself with the average four-year-old, Okay, not the exceptional four-year-old, I might lose, but the average four-year-old, would you win at most things against them in a comparison? I'm taller, I win that one, right? I'm smarter than most four-year-olds, right? I'm probably faster and stronger than four-year-olds, right? Most categories, probably all categories, we would win, right? So if greatness is a matter of comparing myself, I'm greater than the average four-year-old. That makes me feel good, right? However, Jesus says this. He says, he takes this four-year-old. He says, you know, if you want to play that game, okay, you win. But here's the deal. If you welcome this child in my name, it's just like welcoming me. And by doing that, it's just like welcoming God himself. So what is, the, what is his point? His point is this, that the very greatness of God is present in the small child, uh, overlooked and unskilled as he is, Right? Jesus is saying that greatness is not about what we do. It is how God views us. You see, God cherishes that little child exactly like he cherishes you. Because that little child was created in God's image and is the recipient of God's cherished love and affection. Right? So who's more important, a four-year-old or a 40-year-old in God's eyes? Well, they're the same, right? Because we are all creatures created in God's image. We are beings who are the recipients of his longing love and affection. So when God looks at us, he does not look at who's better based on their performance than another. He sees us as his created beings whom he loves. And He created us with greatness. And that's exactly what Jesus says. He says, you take this weakest child, because of God's heart towards them, they are great. That's what he says. Literally, he says, 
Take the least, the smallest among you. This is the one who is great. He's not saying they're greater than you. He's saying they're great, just like you're great. And what he's asserting here is that every human being is equally great in the estimation and affection of God. Of course, not every person receives his redeeming work equally. And even though God's longing for us is equally that all human beings would achieve the greatness by which he created and and to what end he created us. Um, We we don't all reach that potential, but the, the potential and God's intended purpose for us all is greatness. That's what it means to be human, to be created in the image of God. So God does not love based on how we compare to others. Right? Jesus never once, it's interesting, Jesus never once ranks or orders his disciples. Right? They say, oh yeah, but what about Peter, James, and John? Right? Well, it's true, they may have been closer to Jesus, but he never gives them higher rank. Right? He never puts them above any other. Jesus sees the 12 as apostles. Right? He never ranks or orders them. He has no captains, majors, lieutenants, or privates. He only has followers. So to Jesus, they are all great, and they are all destined for greatness. And he loves them all equally. And with Jesus, there is no comparison. So for us, uh, you know, greatness is never about comparing ourselves with each other. So any, anything that we do, any part of our life or being that's about comparing ourselves, we need to change our thinking about this and recognize that our greatness does not come from our performance or what we do. It comes from what God is doing in us and through us. Quickly, jump to the next story. Uh, this one has to do with no special permission. Okay, so Jesus lays this out to them. He says, you're all great. Okay, you're all great. From, from the little baby up to the oldest person, from, from the person who can achieve great accomplishments to the cripple who can't do anything. You're all great in God's eyes. So uh, John answers, okay, so in response to this, because this is not a different story, this is uh, it a different story, but it's a continuation. And John answers and he says this, Master, i got to tell you about this, okay? We saw someone casting out demons in your name. <gasps> And so I stopped him. Which you know, I put an end to that. None of this helping people in Jesus' name stuff, right? But what in the world is that about? Clearly, there still is some wrong thinking going on here, right? Uh, looking at it from an outside perspective, we know they're still missing something. So what is the wrong thinking going on here? Well, I think they're still thinking about greatness, but with a slightly different focus. And John says, okay, I get that. You know, we're all great. Yeah, sure. But out of this group of all great people, surely there must be a group of great people who are more special than all the other great people. And I'm pretty sure we're in that group. Because after all, you handpicked us. We're the 12, the apostles. We're the special ones. So sure, we're all great, but we're the special great ones, right? Um, Yay for us. And that guy over there, he is not one of the special group. So I just want to make that clear, right? We're the special ones. They're the average ones, great as they are, right? And that's kind of the thinking that's going on in John's head. Um, 
do you ever feel that way, right? And, and, and the issue here is that we feel uh, that we are special because we have s- some special choosing or special permission or right or authority that others do not. So, uh, you know, maybe we don't rank by comparison, but we gain significance or specialness by our unique choosing or calling. I'm in a group or class of people that's inherently more special than the rest, right? And we all want to be in that group. Remember back when I was in high school, I worked at this Bible camp, and uh, for me, what this meant was... Being special, gaining, getting extra special permission and, and authority meant getting keys to certain buildings. And everything there was, had locks. There were big, huge rings of keys to unlock all these different doors and chambers, right? And, like, if you were just a kind of a flunky nobody, you would get the key to the food, the food closet, you know, because everybody had to go in there. But as you, as you became more special, in my thinking, you got more keys, Right? And by the time I was like 18, I had a wad of keys. Man, I was special because I had rights and permission to all kinds of places other people couldn't go, right? And so you become kind of the, and and that's what John's doing here. He goes, we have the key. We have permission to do this casting out demon thing. They don't, right? Um, And so we become, or like John, we become the church police, right? Making sure we control people, right? And we, uh, we are not comparing each other, but we are in competition with each other, right? We start competing with others to show that we are more special than them. We have access and rights and privileges that they don't have. And so that bad thinking of, uh, you know, I'm special, starts to produce in us the spirit of competition. Um, and again, this the first problem was within the group of 12. This is in, in the context of a bigger group of people, how they're relating with those outside the 12, but who are still followers of Christ. Okay, now, this guy's not casting out demons in the name of a scribe or a Pharisee. He's casting out pe- demons in the name of Jesus, right? He's clearly someone who's following Christ, um, but it causes jealousy and competition. Well, Jesus answers them. What does he say? He says, um, he says, don't stop him. <laughs> don't, don't do that. Don't stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. He says, look, you're on the same team, okay? You're on the same team. What makes you special is not permission, but mission, right? My mission is that you go out and help people in my name. Uh, my mission is that you proclaim Christ in my name. It says, don't stop people who are joining and participating in the same exact mission. Because if they are, it means you're on the same team, right? Don't stop your team members. Um, okay, just, just imagine if you're, uh, if you're playing soccer, right? And, uh, you know, the guy down there standing in the net has a different shirt. And unlike all the rest of the team, he uses his hands. Everybody else uses their feet. He uses his hands. You go, well, that guy's just not right. He's wearing the wrong shirt, and he's using his hands. And you go over there and you tell him, your goalkeeper, get off the field. What do you think you're doing? You're not one of us. Leave, right? So you kick him out. That's better. We don't have a goalkeeper. We don't need one, right? Because he's the wrong kind. Well, it would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? 
You're not going to win games without a goalkeeper. That's exactly what John's doing here. It's a good thing we never do that, right? It's a good thing we never criticize or compete or contend against those who do the mission differently than we do, right? Who use a strategy or a method or an approach different from us. It's a good thing we never do that. It's a good thing that we never feel a sense of competition with those who do what we do, right? Who, uh, whatever it is you do, you know, church planting, if somebody's planting more churches than you are, you know, or using a method different than what you feel is the approved method, how do you feel about that, right? Do you feel like being the church police and going up and telling them, you can't do that, it's cheating, Or do you have a sense that you are on the same team, on the same mission, and that they are co-workers and teammates, and that your success as a team depends on you supporting and encouraging and working with even goalkeepers who wear different shirts and get to play with, you know, use their hands instead of just their feet, right? Third story. Uh, I call this one proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming grace with grace. Um, I love this, okay? Uh, Last story. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, speaking of his death and resurrection, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Okay, so Jesus is starting to sense the the nearness of the cross, and he, he boldly resolves and determines to go to Jerusalem. Okay, not to turn away from what's before him, but he sets his face to that goal. Uh... And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him there because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? (laughs) Uh, But Jesus rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Um, Jesus actually not only determines to go to Jerusalem, but he starts moving out of, and this really ends the, what's called the Galilean section. So the first nine chapters of Luke is mostly centered around Galilee. The next uh, about nine, ten chapters, the action moves outside of Galilee as Jesus is gradually moving closer to Jerusalem. And it takes a while for him to get there. He doesn't go directly there. Uh, but the shift of his ministry changes And so he's now going into Samaria, which is between Galilee and the north, where Jesus has been, and Jerusalem. And most Jews would have taken the long way around Samaria because they hated the the, the Samaritans. They didn't get along. But Jesus' mission is to people like this, right? And so he he goes to the Samaritan village and wants to proclaim the gospel. He wants to proclaim the good news of grace to them. But because he's a Jew, because uh, his mission is to go to Jerusalem, and uh, because the Samaritans have this long-standing cultural hatred of the Jews, they say, no, we're not, we're not letting Jesus in. Move on, right? Um, so, uh, the, the James and John. John kind of, in a lot of these stories here, and he's still in it, still not really getting it. And he wants, you know, his solution, let's just burn the whole city. This will be so cool, 
right? God, and, and I love his boldness here. It's like his faith is growing. We could commend his faith here. He's not like doubting this one. Hey, God, I think we could do this. I, I read this once in the Bible, right? Elijah did it. Let's be Elijah. Let's have a firework show, right? Because, you know, they rejected you. Now, some of John's zeal here is admirable. Uh, he's defending Jesus' honor. And, and the disciples are starting to get the picture that if you reject Jesus, ultimately you will face God's wrath and judgment. So in that, they are correct and uh, kind of on the right train of thought. But, but here's the catch, right? You kind of wonder, this is, this is a Samaritan village and the Jews hated the, the Samaritans. The disciples, as we see in other parts of the Gospels, kind of had some issues with the Samaritans. Even in Acts, we see Peter struggling with uh, the gospel as it goes to the Samaritans and to the Gentiles. Right? They are, they are in, in a word, they're prejudiced towards people who are different than them. And you kind of wonder if this event had happened in a Jewish Israelite village in Galilee, would they have been as quick and eager to see fire fall and destroy it if it was their relatives and their family and their people? Right? Probably not. Because probably what's at issue here is not so much Jesus' reputation and his being rejected, is their preconceived mindset against those who, to whom they feel superior. Right? And the question here is, what makes us good? What makes me better than others? And I think James and John felt that as Jews, they were just better than Samaritans. Right? They were God's chosen people. The Samaritans were not. They had blown it. They were, you know, the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem, which was true. The Samaritans were worshipped in another place, which was false. Right? The Jews had the law. The Samaritans had lost it. So they felt they were better than the Samaritans. And the, so that's the thinking. That's the bad thinking that was in their heads. Um, what is the behavior that comes out of that bad thinking, well, it's far too easy for them to judge and condemn the Samaritans. That's, that's the behavior that comes out. They become judgmental and condemning towards the people that God loves. Now, here's the test for us. Uh, do you find that there are groups of people or kinds of people that you find it way too easy to be impatient with? or condemning of, right? I know I find this in my own life. Sometimes I can be so impatient and harsh and blunt with certain groups and certain kinds of people in ways that I would never treat somebody who I held higher and respected more, right? So it's a prejudice on my part that I think I am superior to people because of their culture, because of their religious background, because of their educational background or lack thereof, right? And we feel we're better than them. And it comes out in attitudes and behavior that is impatient and condemning and judgmental. Well, it says that Jesus turns immediately and rebukes them. And sadly, it doesn't say what, they said, what he said. Wouldn't you have loved to have heard what he said? We don't know. But there are a couple of clues from the context about, about what was wrong and what needed to change in their thinking. Let me read three brief verses. The first is actually the the verses that precede this passage. Okay, so the context right immediately before this. 
The other two verses come out of these three short snapshots. So listen to these verses. First, in nine, Luke 9.44, Jesus says this, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Right, so it's the second announcement of Jesus' upcoming and impending crucifixion, which the disciples did not get. Second verse, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, to die on the cross and to be resurrected, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. He determined to go. Verse 55. But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. It really echoes another verse out of uh, chapter 4 where, uh, where Jesus said this. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for, this, uh, for, for I was sent for this purpose. I was sent for this purpose. In other words, Jesus is very clear about his mission of bringing the good news of his grace to lost and dying people. When they uh, want to call down fire, Jesus rebukes them. He says, no. Whatever it was he said, he says, no, we're not doing that. And he intentionally goes with his message of grace to the next town, the next Samaritan village. right? And he proclaims grace. And I think we can assume... Uh, that he is urging them to proclaim grace with grace, right? right? So as you go proclaiming the good news of Jesus, do it like you actually love people, right? Not like you want fire falling down on them. Okay, proclaim the good news as if God loves them and God cares for them and God is patiently calling them to himself, right? Not so quickly and impatiently giving up on them and calling down wrath and judgment. Um, and the, the reality is that until the disciples really understood why Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, until they really got what that was about, right, they would never really understand what greatness was for them or for anybody else. Because here's the truth that's behind that. Jesus is saying through his actions, not so much here through his words, but through what he's modeling, he's saying this. What makes you good, what makes you better, is simply my grace being poured out in your life. Right? You who are Jews, you are not better because you're related in a more direct line to Abraham. That does you no good. You are not better because you worship at the temple in Jerusalem. It's about to be destroyed. It does you no good. Because you think you keep the law, you think you are better, you are not. It only brings to you a higher standard of judgment against you. It only increases your condemnation, Paul says. It does you no good. The only hope for you is that Jesus died for you. Right? You need, and Jesus by his actions is saying, look, you 12 need the cross exactly the same way as the Samaritan village needs the cross. Because we've all at some level rejected and turned away from Christ. And the only hope to reverse that is that Jesus died for us and rose again and poured out his spirit in a way that would be transforming in our life. Right? All right, so let's summarize, conclude this this way. Um, 
we are to be seeking true greatness. I really believe God longs that each and every one of you achieve a greatness beyond what you can imagine. It's God's call and purpose in your life. Um, but we have to understand what that greatness is about. That greatness is the value and worth and glory that God bestows on us by his grace. Not what we accomplish or do better than somebody else. Right? Now, of course, we do things and we walk in obedience and he wants to use us. But it's not those things that make us great. It's God's compassion for us, his heart for us, of what he has created us to be in himself. So as we seek to greatness, these three stories tell us three things. First, we need to evaluate our life. Are we comparing ourselves with other, others or are we coaching others? Right? If, we're, if we're wasting our time comparing ourselves and getting wrapped up in how we measure up against somebody else, we're missing it. Uh, instead, we need to be working to see the, uh, the glory of God, the greatness of God unfold in other people's lives. So that's what discipleship is. Discipleship is in our own lives pursuing God's greatness in us. Being a disciple maker is doing everything we can to bring about that greatness in the lives of others. C.S. Lewis has a great quote. Uh, let me read it. It talks about really what we are as human beings. He says this, It may be possible for each of us to think too much of his own potential glory. I mean, we could think too much about that. But he says this, it is hardly possible for us to think too often or too deeply about the, the glory, the potential glory of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. In other words, it is our burden... It is our calling to carry the glory of our neighbor, to pursue their greatness. That's what he's saying. Um, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to. Okay, so imagine like the person three people over. No. Uh, Sooner bricks listening anyway. Okay, uh, start start over. It's a serious thing in a society of gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature of which, if you say it now, you would you would be strongly tempted to worship. In other words, the person next to you has the potential to be, and will be someday, a creature so glorious and so great. He says, you would be tempted to worship them because they will be so awe-inspiring. Right? Is that how you view the person next to you? Okay. Um, or, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet only in a nightmare. So those are the two destinies before us. Incomparable glory or horrific terror. Right? And, and he says this, all day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of those destinations. 
read it again. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of those destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours like the life of a gnat. But it is with immortals whom we joke with, we work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors, right? Um, are you competing against each other? Right? If we understood what we were going to become, we wouldn't even bother trying to compete. Instead, we need to be discipling. We need to be building others up to come to the place of their fullness of glory in Christ. Okay? That should be the mission and focus of our life. Secondly, are we a competitor or a co-worker? Okay? In our relationship with other people in the body of Christ who share our mission, who are committed to proclaiming Christ and helping people in his name, um, do you work with them or are you, are you in competition with them? We are on the same team, even those goalies, right? We're all on the same team. We may not all do things the same way, but we're on the same team if we are doing the work of Christ. Uh, when you are clearly gifted in an area, how do, you, how do you view others who are inferior? If you have been given five talents, how do you feel about the person with two, right? Or if your talents are gold, how do you feel about the person whose talents are silver? Right? If your talents are administrative, how, how do you feel about those whose talents are evangelistic? Right? How do we feel about those who operate differently than us? Or in reverse, perhaps you have the two. How do you feel about the one who has five? Right? How do we feel about working with those who do things differently than us? Um, do we see them as valuable teammates? Uh, it really is amazing, you know, uh, how much people in the, in the church and in ministry and Christian organizations bicker and argue and fight about their methods and their strategies, right? right? Now you can have your method, you can have your strategy, and it's probably going to be different than somebody else's, right? We don't need to fight about it, right? There are six billion people in the world. Most of them need Jesus, right? Just get out there and share Christ with somebody. Help somebody in the name of Jesus. And as you do that, Work with people. Help them be successful in ministry. Lastly, uh, are we filled with condemnation or compassion? Right? Uh, are there in us, are there, well, put it this way, not are there. There are in us prejudices, right? Are we aware of how we look down on some people because of their background, culture, nationality, ethnicity, educational level? Economic status, right? Um, do, we, do we ever feel that it would be a waste of time to go share the gospel with that person or that group of people because obviously God could not save them? That is, in a sense, doing exactly what John said. It's saying, just let the fires of hell fall on them because they're not worth saving anyway. Or do we believe that God's grace is for every human being? 
that everyone needs to hear and have an opportunity to respond to who Christ is and what he's done for them. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.